Father, we thank you that you are uh, in control, that you know what is best for us. Um, we're not slick, we're not smooth. There are lots of, of challenges that we face, not only in planning services, but also in our life in general. But we thank you that in all things, Lord, that you rule and that you reign. And we, we pray that we would have this recognition that it's not our dependency upon our own strength and our own ability, our Lord, but on you. Would you drive us more to you as we come, as we meditate on your word? And may our hearts, may our lives be driven to you in a greater dependence and acknowledgement of your goodness and your grace towards us in Christ. Amen. Okay. Are we truly evangelical? Start with a provocative question. Uh, let's start with a slightly easier question uh, first. Have you ever had that experience where you get on a train and you're not entirely sure, you're not entirely confident that the train that you're on is the train that you want to be on, the train that you need to be on? I mean, several years back now, I was um, due to go to a training weekend for um, a mission to Ecuador. And there's a connection that I needed to make, get to the right station, get to the right platform. I'm on the right train train pulls out and you hear that announcement the next station this train is going to divide one thing on my mind everyone else's mind in the carriage are we in the right carriage are we in the right part of the train in prepping this actually that evening uh, there was a, a comedian who was on tv and was talking about exactly the same experience and i thought good it's not just me everyone has this experience of i don't know what carriage i'm in Am I in the first four? Am I in the last four? And this was in the days before you had that nice LCD display that said, you are in carriage number four. The toilets are here. Now, this carriage is this full. And we just had one of those LED screens, the scrolling one. And it wasn't updated. It just said the original destination. So there are people walking up and down the carriage and saying, do you know what carriage we're in? Are we in the, are we in the front? Are we in the back? No one knew where they were. It was an important question for us to ask. Are we in the right carriage? Are we still heading along the right track? And in many ways, that's a good question for us to be asking as a church. Kind of, are we in the right carriage? Are we still heading along the right track? Over 2,000 years of Christian history, there's been various splits and divisions. It's as though we've come to different stations and Christianity is divided in different ways. Like, are we in the right carriage? Are we heading along the right track? We shouldn't just assume that we are and that we're going to continue to do so. We describe ourselves as evangelical. Evangelicals. As an evangelical, it means that we say we are committed to remaining on that same track that was laid down by Jesus and the apostles. It's one of the key tenets of being an evangelical. We're committed to the truths of Scripture, the gospel as laid out by Jesus and by those apostles. So a good question for us to ask is, is, do we have that certainty? Are we in the right carriage? Are we continuing along the right track to the, the question uh, in the sermon? Are we truly evangelicals? And in many ways, this letter of 1 John is written with that sort of question in mind. There's some sort of division that has happened in the Christian community, uh, and we'll look at that in uh, more detail in future weeks in chapter 2, 7, uh, 19, sorry. We read about this 
division that has happened. There are two groups that are making these truth claims. And John writes to reassure the church. To say to them, now this is what it means to be in the right carriage. This is what the right carriage looks like. This is what the right track is. So that you may know that you are in the right carriage, heading down the right track. And what that's going to mean. He writes so that they, so that we may have that confidence. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, do have them open to 1 John chapter 1. Last week we were looking at verses 1 to 4. Just a very quick uh, recap as we come to our passage this morning. Uh, John begins by affirming the eyewitness testimony that he and others have. Uh, 1-1, he talks about, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked, our hands have touched it. uh, And this is what we've proclaimed to you. We were the eyewitnesses. We proclaim this message to you. Verse 3. We proclaim to you, to the church, what we, those original eyewitnesses, have seen and heard, so that you, the church, may have fellowship with us. So you may have fellowship with us, the original eyewitnesses. You may know, you know, what, what carriage to be and what track you are heading along, because our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That we may have fellowship together with the Father and with the Son. As evangelicals, now we are committed to staying on that track, that track that was laid down by Jesus and by the apostles. In our passage this morning, John is going to describe to us what that right track looks like and then the certainty of where that is heading, what that means. So there are two sort of headings to help uh, direct us this morning. Uh, one, John, it's not the easiest letter to write things. At, jumping about things are being brought in uh, here, there, and, and everywhere, it seems. We're going to consider, then, uh, knowing that we're in the light. So verse 5, chapter 1, through to two, eleven, and knowing we have life. So knowing we're in the light, we're looking at verse 5 of chapter 1 through to verse 11 of chapter 2. Verse 5 says, this is a message we heard from him and declare to you. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. In the game Chinese whispers, You're not entirely sure sometimes when the message has been passed on to you whether that is still what was said at the beginning. I mean, depending who you're playing with, not looking at anyone at the moment, Dan, but, you know, some people might intentionally change it along the way because they're a bit mischievous and they like to have a bit of a laugh. Or maybe they miss it. But with Chinese whispers, the only way that you can know is you go back to the beginning. You test what you've heard with what was originally shared. Is that the case. And this is what John is doing here. He cuts through the various truth claims that are being made and he says, contrary to what some of those truth claims are claiming, saying this is the message. This is the message that we heard from him and we declare to you, we passed it on faithfully, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And therefore, the implication of that verse 6 is you cannot claim to have fellowship with God. You cannot claim to be in God, who is light and there is no darkness at all, and yet walk in the darkness. 
In God there is no darkness. So to walk in the darkness, and what that means is going to be explained in the verses that follow. To walk in darkness means that you don't have fellowship with God. It means that the church, that community, is heading down the wrong track. So what is the right track? Verse 7 is to walk in the light. If God is light, to have fellowship with God, it's to walk in the light. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. In many ways, this is a summary statement. It's going to get unpacked in the verses that follow. It gets unpacked in reverse order. And so there are two distinctions that are drawn between a community that is walking in the light uh, and one that is walking in darkness. And that's uh, our approach to sin and our approach to one another. So our approach to sin, verses 8 to 2, 2, chapter 2, verse 2, uh, and our approach to one another, chapter 2, verse 3, 3 to 11. Now as we go through some of these verses, uh, some of what comes out may seem very basic. But you know what? Basic is good. Basic is, is important, it's necessary. Now, a few months back I did something to uh, my shoulder, I think doing some exercise. I've neglected some basic stabilising muscles. I haven't been training them, I've been doing other things. Uh, and when you neglect those basic stabilising muscles, it's easy for things to get pulled out of joints. See, when we neglect the basics, we can easily get pulled off track. The basics are important. They're stabilising. And so even if we feel some of these things are basic, it's important for us to keep coming back to. So we're committed as evangelicals to stay on that track, laid down by Jesus, laid down by his apostles. So firstly, the, the thing that is drawn out, our approach to sin. Uh, in this passage, two things are described as a manifestation of walking in darkness. Verse 8, claiming to be without sin. And verse 10, if we claim we've not sinned. And we just look back at, at verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So two ways then that not walking in the truth is manifested. Look, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. We're denying God's truth. And his word is not in us. John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. There's this denial of sin, this denial of truth. And John says, a community that does that is walking in the darkness. So what might that mean? What's it mean to claim to be without sin? We could say at a basic level, it's to say, no, we've made it, we've done. We don't need the ongoing ministry of the gospel anymore. We are now without sin, we're fine. Maybe that might be manifested in a teaching that we've sort of reached some sinless perfection. But it could also be by just saying, you know, I've done it, I've done everything that's necessary. I said that prayer, I've been baptised, I've signed that document. 
Now my life's fine. I've got my ticket to heaven. I don't need the gospel anymore. I'm done with it. It's the basics. It's finished. That's one way uh, that claiming to be without sin could be manifested. Or verse 10, claiming that we've not sinned. That's just saying I never needed the gospel to begin with. It's putting aside, pushing aside the gospel. And John says all that shows when a community is teaching, when they're believing, when they're accepting that, all it shows is you're walking in darkness. Clearly, you cannot see. So what's it mean to walk in the light? Well, we see that in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Gets unpacked a bit later. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now what that means is explained in verse 9. It's not saying that we reach a state of sinless perfection. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and, note, purify us from all unrighteousness. What does it mean to be purified from all sin in verse 7? We're told in verse 9. We're purified from all, right, uh, from all unrighteousness as we confess our sins because his God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And John makes it clear, you know, this isn't an excuse to live as we want. Chapter 2, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, we're going to drill into that a bit more uh, later on in the sermon. I'm going to leave that there. But just focusing on the general teaching here at this point. John is saying that a community now that is walking in the light is purified from all sin, not because of they've reached this state of sinless perfection, but because of this ongoing confession of sin. And this ongoing confession of sin, and God constantly and faithfully responds to that with forgiveness and with purifying from all unrighteousness. So in summary, we might say in these first few verses, a true gospel community is marked by this continual confession of sin. Walking in the light is manifested by a right view of ourselves. Now, a right view of God is the one who is forgiving and merciful, the one that we turn to. That is a manifestation of what it means to walk in in the light. This is what the carriage looks like. This is what it means to be on that original track. The second distinctive then from verse 3 of chapter 2 is our approach to one another. Verse 3 begins with, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. So an important question we want to be asking ourselves is, well, what are his commands? One of the things we'll find in 1 John, that very often these themes are introduced and then they get picked up later, they get expanded on, they keep coming back round and round again. So in chapter 3, it will be unpacked a a, a bit more. He'll ask that um, question, kind of, what are God's commands? So in chapter 3, 22, because we keep his commands, 
And then verse 23 is going to unpack a bit more about what that is. His command, it's summarised as believing in the name, trusting in Jesus Christ and loving one another. Some of those, again, they're going to get unpacked later in this letter. The focus primarily in this section, as we see in verse 7, is on this command to love one another. Chapter 2, verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard since the beginning. This old command is a message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So firstly, this isn't an old command. This isn't something that has been added on to the original message. This isn't a diversion from the original journey, that original trap that was laid out at the very beginning. This is something that you've received since the beginning. Speaking to the church, when you first received the gospel, when you first believed the message, this was something we proclaimed to you. This is original. This is authentic. In that sense, it's an old command. And it's those who are deviating from this, those are the ones who have gone off track. You want to know what the original truth was? It's to love one another. It's an old command. And yet, verse 8, it's a new command. I'm writing to you this new command. Well, if it's an old command, how is it old and how is it new? Well, it's new in the sense that this is how Jesus described it. Jesus spoke to his disciples in John 13, 34. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. This command is known as a new command. Jesus said a new command. And yet even then it wasn't new in the sense of new revelation. Because Leviticus 19, in the Old Testament, God has said you should love your neighbour as yourself. So when Jesus says to his disciples, a new command, as John refers to this new command here, is not new in a sense of new revelation, it's new because it's a new reality. So in verse 8, I'm writing to you what? A new command. Let's just jump over to the because. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. See, something has changed to make this new to make this a new reality. And it's the message of the gospel. It's the work of Jesus that through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and now the pouring out of the Spirit, that this command becomes a new reality. Not a new revelation declared in Leviticus, but now in Christ it becomes a new reality. Why? Because the light is already shining. To the work of Jesus. This has become new. And therefore, we're told in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light, the light that is already shining, this new reality, but I hate a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. For anyone who loves a brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. So again, a community that promotes hatred and division rather than love is walking in the darkness. That, that's a sign. It's a wrong carriage. It's heading along the right track. But a community that loves one another, that's a sign you're on the right track. 
And so in summary, a true gospel community is marked by loving one another. That's the focus here, verses 3 to 11. And much more is going to get said on this as we go through the letter. There's much more that we can say that we'll look at in later weeks. But at this point, the focus of the letter has been to demonstrate what the true gospel community looks like. What does it mean to be on the right track? Are we heading down the same track laid down by Jesus and those apostles? And that's a question we need to ask ourselves And as we read through these passages. Are we on the right track? And we're not meant to respond to this by feeling smug. It's meant to keep us safe. To check that we're heading down that right track. And that we continue to do so. I'm thankful being a part of Kingfisher Church and reading this and looking around at the church and saying, yeah, we can see evidences of this in our community. We should be encouraged by that. But then we shouldn't assume that where we are today is where we're going to be tomorrow. We shouldn't take it for granted. A quick look at history will keep us humble. You know, many, a great movement has gone off at Tangent. Where we're at today does not necessarily mean where we're going to be at tomorrow. And unlike a train, you know, when a train pulls into a station and that announcement, this station, the train is going to divide in two, it's a very clear, distinct moment. That's not how it happens in life. In life, it's often a subtle drift. It's not clear, it's not black and white. So we need to be asking ourselves, well, what are those signs of subtle drift? And though this letter is written to a community, to a church, a community is made up of us as individuals. We all contribute to that community, and whether for good or whether for ill. So just before we move on to uh, verses 12 to 14, it's worth us just pausing for a moment and asking that question, making it personal. Now, what might be those signs of subtle drift that we need to watch out for? Need to watch out for in our own lives? What might we recognize in one another? And how do we encourage one another? How do we reorientate ourselves back to the truth? What might be the signs of subtle drift then? So our approach to sin... It's probably unlikely that we are going to claim that we are sinless. But are there ways in which we deny our sin? Now, when you find yourself in a situation and you respond in a sinful manner, is there a tendency for self-justification? It can be easy, can't it, for, for all of us to blame the situation, to blame what was going on around us. I'm tired. I'm hungry. That person was pressing my buttons. We put the blame on someone else. And I speak to myself, as much as any of us in this, do we try and justify ourselves in that situation? And in those times where we know we need to apologize, or an an apology is necessary, do we apologize by taking ownership of our sin? Or does it become... Vague. 
kind of circumnavigate that apology. And you know those apologies. Sorry if you feel upset. Sorry if I offended you. It's a non-apology. It's not taking ownership of anything. Basically, it's saying, oh, I'm, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just sorry that you're oversensitive to the situation. And when we do that, when we respond in that way, we shortcut repentance. We shortcut this confession. And we don't turn to God in confession because we convince ourselves, actually, I'm the person who's in the right. It doesn't mean we need to own it all. But do we take proper ownership of our sin? We make the right apologies. We bring the right confession to God. How about the second section? Our love for one another. I don't imagine we, uh, we don't vehemently hate other Christians. And yet there's a subtle shift in selfishness that we can fall into. Now that could be a self-absorbed focus in relation to other churches, as is the case when we read in the letter 3, John, with Diotrephes. Now we were hearing uh, this morning about our mission partners. Now when you hear about the different missions that are supported outside the four walls, is your response one of joy? This is great to support others. Maybe a fruit that we won't even see or experience. Or is it one of frustration? Might there be a subtle drift into selfishness? It's always a good question for us to keep asking ourselves. Well, how about a subtle shift into selfishness in our relationships with one another? That question we ask ourselves here, am I interested in how that person can meet my needs or do I consider how I can meet the needs, how I can serve others? And as we come to this point, now with the lifting uh, of legal restrictions, we have an opportunity as a church to love for and to care for one another. We're all going to respond to it in slightly different ways. Now some of us are quite nervous of legal restrictions being lifted. Recognising that there's still challenges there, that there's still things that are spreading. Some of us are very relaxed about it. And we shouldn't assume the way that we feel is the way that someone else feels. And we talk through as elders that though we could impose maybe certain regulations and we could say as a church, we're going to do this. The thing is, if we do that, we probably shortcut that opportunity to love one another. Because then we just end up kind of serving a system, doing something, because that's what we're told, rather than actually serving one another and following the way of love. That's a good question for us to be asking, is how can we care for one another? Not to assume that we're all okay. Not to assume, you know, if if people aren't here, maybe they're not here because they're not well. We know there are people who are having to self-isolate. We know there are people who are away on holiday. Maybe there are people who aren't here because they are nervous. How can we reach out to them? How can we speak to them? How can we find out? Let's not assume. Let's talk to one another. Now, please talk to us as elders as well. How can we care for and love one another? And love may look, you know, it may take a whole variety of forms. We may come to the conclusion that we say, you know, we're pretty much all going to wear masks inside because for the vast majority of people that's helpful. 
It may not. Love may look like forcing a hot water bullet down the back of your throat each week to do an LFT test. It may not. We shouldn't assume that one thing or another is the way that we need to go. Let's speak to one another and care for one another. Now, as news articles are addressing this question of what am I free to do now? After the 19th of July, what am I free to do? Let us as a church be asking, how have I been free to love and care for my brothers and sisters? Now, we can do that because the light is already shining. In Christ, that way has been made open to us. And yet, you know, in all this, we have, and we are going to make mistakes. And we need to support one another in that as well, and reorientate ourselves to the truth, continue to encourage one another. And yet, as I've seen people doing, let's do so more and more. And as we make those mistakes, as we sin against one another, not necessarily intentionally, let's reorientate ourselves, and it comes back, doesn't it, to verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Not only forgiveness, but an ongoing change and a transformation. And so in summary... A true gospel community is marked by a confession of sin, a continued confession of sin through trusting in the atoning work of Christ and a love for one another. And John is saying this is what it means that to continue along that right track, that track that was laid by Jesus, laid by the apostles, the original eyewitnesses, to have fellowship with us. He's saying our fellowship is with God, with a father, with a son. And because God has way, uh, laid out this way, it means it is a certain and it is a secure way. And so we get this change when we come to verse 12. We come to the final section uh, of our passage this morning. And we move from knowing that we're in the light to knowing what it means that we have life. And so having described what it means to be in the right carriage... Heading along the right track, John now goes on to speak about the certainty of salvation. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. And John makes clear at this point, he's not writing this letter. He's not addressing those who have gone off. Who have got off the track. He is writing to those who have remained in the truth. And that's going to direct the focus of the rest of this letter. In these verses, we've got this highly stylized way of writing. And we've got this reference to children and to fathers and to young men, and this question kind of, what is going on here? What's being said? One thing that is worth highlighting, just spend a minute or so here, is that what is said of the supposedly different groups here is said of the church as a whole in the rest of a letter. So I put some stuff up on the screen. And in two, so in 2.18, uh, 
I think we're looking at this next week, it begins, dear children. And then it goes on to speak about having, knowing that the Father and the Son. Which is kind of the same thing that is said about fathers here in verses 13 and 14. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, once again, it is addressed to dear children. And it goes on to say, you've overcome them, you've overcome the world. Again, a similar theme here that is addressed to the young men in verses 13 and 14. So whatever is going on here, we shouldn't think that these verses are putting forward kind of different stages of spirituality. As though you start off as this child, you start off with the forgiveness of sins, and if you try you know, really hard and you work at it, maybe you'll attain to being a young man and you'll overcome the evil one. Everything that is said here of these supposedly different groups, children and fathers and young men, is said of the church as a whole in the letter, using the term children. Okay, so what's the point of fathers uh, and young men and children? To be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure. I've yet to read anyone who is entirely sure. But one thing that we can be sure of is the point of this passage. And the point is to highlight the certainty of salvation that is in Christ. Now, knowing that we're going to look at some of these themes in later weeks uh, with very limited time, I'm just going to focus for the last few minutes on verse 12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And then that sort of parallel statement in verse 14, I write to you, slight shift in tenses, but I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Forgiveness and knowing the Father. And as Rick shared the other week, forgiveness is not the end in itself. Forgiveness is to lead to relationship. Now we're forgiven for the purpose of giving us this relationship with God, that we may know him, this experiential relational knowledge. And to know God is to have eternal life. As Jesus said in his prayer, John 17 verse 3. So eternal life is not just this quantity of life, it's a quality of life. It's a thing we were created for. And this eternal life then, knowing the Father, verse 14, it is guaranteed because, verse 12, sins are forgiven. The thing that separated us, that kept us away from God, has been dealt with. Sins are forgiven. Eternal life is guaranteed because sins are forgiven. And sins being forgiven is guaranteed because, look at verse 12, it is on account of his name. The forgiveness of sins is on account of his name. It is not on account of your words. Now, yes, verse 9, we're told if we confess our sins, there is a need for confession. But our security and our certainty is not in our words as though, you know, we've said the exact necessary words that are needed for God suddenly to open up his heart to us. So we shouldn't fret and we shouldn't worry. Like, have I... Have I said it with enough force? Have I said those right words? Has God really heard me? It is not based on your words. It is based on the account of his name. See, when we confess, why is it that God forgives? Verse 9, he is faithful and he is just. See, God will do what he has promised. 
every time without fail. When we confess, we can have this assurance that God will forgive. Because that is who he is. It is on account of his name. Because, chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate, the one who makes sure that we receive what it is that we need. In this case, forgiveness of sins. Jesus makes sure that forgiveness. And he does so because he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love of God means that the destructive, defiling depravity of of sin, he can't just ignore it and let it go on and continue. The love of God means he can't turn a blind eye. And yet God, in his love, in his goodness, in the abundance of his mercy, some of the things we've been singing about this morning, he gives his only son, Jesus, who becomes the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So all that all that sin that requires you know, the, just, the benevolent justice of God to be meted out on it is taken upon Christ. Is meted out on his body on the cross. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, what does that mean? Does that just mean everyone in the whole world, their sins are forgiven whether they want to or not? Well, we're told in verse 9 that we need to confess. What does it mean he's the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world? It means that Jesus is not a tribal deity. He doesn't secure the forgiveness of sins for one small select group of people. It's not just for the original community in one John. When we come to God, when we confess, when we trust in Christ, God is never going to turn around to us and say, sorry, that was just for those people 2,000 years ago living in modern-day Turkey. And for my original disciples and eyewitnesses. No, you in the 21st century, you've got to find another way. No, you, you from the UK, you need to find another way and good luck doing it. Now, he's the atoning sacrifice, not only for us, Johnny say, not only for the original eyewitnesses, but for the whole world. There is only one way and for all no, there, there is only one to trust. The name of Christ. For all there is one way, and there is only one way for all. There is no other name that is given by which we must be saved. And that name, in that name, there is certainty and there is security. We've been forgiven on account of his name. God remains faithful, God remains just. As we confess, as we have confessed, as we continue to confess, every single time, God will respond in the same way. With that forgiveness of sins, and where there is forgiveness of sins, there is relationship, where there is relationship, there is eternal life. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. You know, in the weeks, the months, the years to come, I'm sure you'll probably get on a train. You'll hear that announcement come over the tannoy. And you probably still won't know whether you're in the right carriage or not. But there is something that we can have certainty in. This letter is written so that we may know. So we may know that we may have that certainty that we're 
in the right carriage that we're heading along that right in that troop track. The one that was laid down by Christ that was taught by his apostles. And along that line, there is an absolute certainty of eternal life because God remains true and God remains faithful. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. And we we thank you that you have opened our eyes to the truth. We, We don't want to be presumptuous about that. And we pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on Christ. That we would remain faithful. Because you are the one who is faithful. Thank you for the great assurance and certainty that we have in Christ. That as we come to you, as we confess our sins, even our weakness and our failure to love one another well. That you indeed will forgive us. And you will purify us. And so may we hold on, press on, and hold out this message of the gospel to one another and to this world. Amen.